You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Welcome back. On today's episode, Julie and me talk to the brewmaster of Brooklyn Brewery and the founder of the Michael James Jackson Foundation for Brewing and Distilling, the famous, the celebrated, Garrett Oliver. Garrett shares with us the mission of the foundation that funds technical education and career advancement for Black, Indigenous, and people of color in the brewing and distilling industry with the goal to create a more just, equitable, and dynamic future. Garrett is a legend in the beer and spirit world, and we are so excited to have him on the show. Grab a drink and enjoy. Thank you for joining us today, Garrett. Great to be here. Thanks a lot. Yeah, we're really excited to have you on the show today and to talk about the Brooklyn Brewing Company, as well as the Michael James Jackson Foundation. So the first question I have for you, is it true that you invented beer collaborations? <laughs> it turns out it is true you know i i tell all the kids you know now we're just coming up in brewing that i am 400 years old <laughs> i have always been here uh, and uh i was actually told that i was the inventor of the beer collaboration several years ago by the british guild of beer writers and i said no i'm not and they said yes you are we've, we've been researching this and the the first one we can find anywhere uh, is your collaboration back in 1997 with Breakspear uh, in England. And for a while, we were the only people out there doing it. Uh, and so it became kind of a hallmark of Brooklyn Brewery and then became something that spread throughout uh, craft brewing culture. So uh, I'm proud of that. You know, I mean, we've been around, I've been around for a long time and it's nice to have established a, a, a part of the culture and I think a very cool part as well. Oh, I think it's super cool. You can't go into a brewery today and not see a collaboration on tap, right? It's true. And actually, for a while, I stopped doing collaborations because it seemed like everybody was doing a collaboration with everybody else. And they turned into kind of Instagram photo ops and they didn't seem to have any real depth to them. And so I avoided them for a while. And then only recently, last few years, did I really start to step back into it again and say, wait a minute, like we invented this and we can just do it our way where it has a lot more meaning to it and a lot more depth. So when we get involved in collaborations, most of the time, not that there aren't some light touch ones as well, but they tend to happen on two or three different uh, levels. And often the people involved are my friend friends, not just Facebook friends. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, can you tell us about your journey in the beverage industry and what led you to the Brooklyn Brewing Company? Well, 400 years ago. You know, 
<laughs> I was a, I was, I, I was a film student, uh, and this is what I intended to do. My father was in advertising. Uh, he was a creative director for for uh, YNR, Young and Rubicon. And so, if you've ever seen Mad Men, this was part of the world that I grew up in, and that that show certainly looked very familiar uh, uh, to me. Uh, but I went off on a different branch. I ended up working for HBO, uh, actually for years thereafter. But in between, after my film degree, I moved to England in 1983 and uh, started stage managing rock bands in London. Now, I had been doing this at Boston University already, so I already knew a lot about stage managing rock bands. And I'll put it to you this way. I took the Ramones bowling once, you know. Stop it. Uh, I am not I am not kidding. I put on REM as the opening band for the English beat in 1983. I, you know, I mean, by the end of this conversation, you will actually believe that I am four centuries old. So, <laughs> you know, this was this is the direction I thought I was going in. But while I was living in England, I fell in love with this stuff called beer. And I thought that I had known what beer was. You know, we drank it in college, of course. It was a fizzy yellow liquid without all that much flavor, if you were lucky. Um, but the dirty little secret of beer, at least in college, was we didn't actually like it. We didn't really like it. I can still remember, you know, we drank everything. Tuesday is kamikaze night at Molly's. I still remember kamikaze night. You know, uh, hopefully nobody even remembers what that drink is. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, we drank everything. And I will tell you the absolute truth. Craft brewers like to make fun of big brewers. But the fact of the matter is, we drank Budweiser when we had money. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and most of the time, we didn't have any money. But if we had a little bit of money, we drank Budweiser because it didn't taste like anything. And the other beers that we could afford, they were so much worse you know, they, they tasted terrible. Blue ribbon. Yeah, I mean, oh my God. <laughs> Mickey, Mickey's Big Mouth, uh, Hoffenreffer, also known as the Green Death. I mean, just so many, uh, so many ghastly things. And so, uh, you know, I, I fell in love with the British beer, the cast-conditioned beer, pulled on the hand pump, and I got my first pint, and I was like, why is it amber-colored? It smells like seagrass and, and, and hay and flowers and, and caramel and all this other stuff. And it's kind of warm and kind of flat. And I was like, this is the weirdest drink I've ever had. And then I kept drinking it for like the next year. And I went traveling all over Europe and I saw all this wonderful world of beer and not only beer, I mean, bread. You know, we didn't have bread. We had one or two kinds of bread uh, back in the eighties. You know, and, and so uh, cheese, my first Parisian cheese shop. I had never even heard of it. A cheese shop would have been a ridiculous idea in 1983, you know, even in New York. There were four cheeses. Like, what? Like, what yeah. how, could you, how, could you, how could you have a cheese shop, right? So, you know, I, I, I learned about that. Then I got back to the United States, and they said, Bud, Bud, Light, Miller, Miller, Light, Coors, Coors, Light, Heineken. And I was like, oh, no. So I started brewing at home so that I would actually have something that I wanted to drink. And from there, fell in love with it, and then uh, uh, eventually started working on the professional side at a place called Manhattan Brewing Company uh, uh, back in 1989. Uh, and I became the apprentice to an English brewmaster who had been working for uh, a top British brewery called Samuel Smith's. And I became his apprentice, and then he moved to California, and I became brewmaster there. 
and I went to Brooklyn Brewery in 1994 and, uh, and, and built the brewery and brought out new beers. And it's all been uh, quite a wild ride since then. Wow, that's fascinating. And I love to hear your story because I feel like so many in the industry overall, spirits and wine had a similar story, um, you know, of, of how they've discovered it, in, uh, especially in Europe. So that's great to hear. And with that, how could you tell us a little bit about um, Michael Jackson and, and his relationship to you so that, you know, some of our listeners might not have had the, the privilege to know him and, and know about him. So could you tell us a little bit about, about him? Well, you know, Michael Jackson, and we use his middle name for obvious reasons in the foundation because people have a tendency, if they're not in the drinks business, to think of the pop star. Uh, but, you know, Michael Jackson was one of my best friends. Uh, he was a great champion uh, for me as my career was, uh, was starting. I already knew him from my home brewing days. And I would say, and I have said, uh, uh, and I think I can say without fear of successful contradiction, that he was the most important voice in food and drink of the 20th century. Um, now, you can point to an awful lot of people, whether it's, you know, Robert Parker on the beers on the wine side, or you can, uh, you know, Julia Child or somebody like that. However, you know, Michael Jackson's writings set up the entire taxonomy of the way that we look at beer today. He invented the idea of beer style, uh, which still basically governs even the way we talk about beer uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, the way things like the Great American Beer Festival and almost every competition in the world is run. And it is on the back of his writings that we came to know of things like IPA and Saison and Wick Beer and all these other types of beer that many of us had never had and had never heard of. And he opened up a world of possibilities that well, yeah, you know beer as this thing, but it's actually these 150 things. And, uh, you know, in doing so, almost single-handedly inspired the American craft brewing movement, which then inspired uh, brewing movements all over the world. So you can think of him as the man who, who, you know, who launched the thousand ships. Now, there aren't many people who can say these days that they, well, not only did he sell millions of books in like 20 languages, which is unbelievable, uh, but he was also at the same time the top whiskey expert in the world. So it was, I don't want to say it's funny, but it was actually funny. Uh, at his funeral, there were, we, all the beer people are gathered in the parking lot and we're all talking to each other. And then there's another bunch of people across the parking lot and we don't know who they are. And we're like, who are those people? And it turns out that Michael basically had a whole other family. It was, it was like watching, you know, different families drape themselves over the casket at Mitterrand's funeral. You know, you're like, who, you know, who's that? Um, and those were his whiskey people. And he knew whiskey people all over the world. And his book, uh, Michael Jackson's uh, Whiskey Guide, was the top selling whiskey book for 15, 20 years. Um, and so, uh, you know, we come down with both of those uh, traditions. Um, and uh, we named the uh, foundation after Michael because one, he was so pivotal. Uh, uh, secondly, uh, he actually established together with the founders of Brooklyn Brewery, 
the Michael Jackson Fund for Brewing and Distilling through the American Institute of Wine and Food, AIWF, in the 90s. And it gave out some scholarships, but as AIWF wound down, the, that was still sitting there, the funds were still sitting there. So this is kind of the start of, of the Michael Jackson Foundation. Now, I'll loop back around and just say that, you know, Michael Jackson was not just not a racist, he was a direct anti-racist uh, from his early writings, his work, and also his championing of me. I mean, if you can imagine uh, me as a 30-something African-American man from Queens, New York, uh, backstage at the Great American, uh, Great British Beer Festival, uh, on the final panel to choose champion beer of Britain. Now, this is like 1991, 92. No black person had ever been anywhere close to that room. And champion beer of Britain is such a big deal that if you win it, you know, it probably makes the fortunes of your brewery for at least the next five years, if not for decades. Many breweries, it's so influential that many breweries can't even handle it. Within the beer world in England, it's basically like winning, you know, three Michelin stars, you know, if you win that, or even if you place. So it's a big deal culturally. And uh, Michael said, this is the guy you want. And well, the other people there didn't know me. And when I showed up, believe you me, uh, there was a lot of staring. They're like, who is this guy? And Michael simply wouldn't back down. It's like, he's extremely knowledgeable about all this. He knows all the beers, he knows all the breweries, and he's a brewer and none of you are, and you should listen to him. And, uh, you know, he pushed me forward. He was a, 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 a wind, certainly, uh, under my wings. And uh, in the foundation, we're seeking to do the same thing uh, for people of color inside the brewing and distilling industries. And, uh, you know, we, we certainly honor his memory and his contribution with that naming. Under the foundation, there are two scholarships. Uh, the first one is the Sir Jeff Palmer Scholarship uh, for Brewing. Um, Sir Jeff Palmer is uh, a remarkable man. He's 80 years old. And when you go to Scotland and you talk to brewers and distillers, actually, he's basically known as God. <laughs> Uh, he is originally from Jamaica. Uh, he became the first uh, black professor in Scotland at Harriet Watt you know, University in the life sciences department. Uh, made a great many discoveries. Uh, I mean, uh, so many different honors. You know, ASBC basically gave him their highest honor, the, uh, uh, you know, the American Society of, uh, of Brewing Chemists, which is like the Nobel Prize of Brewing. You know, he's won that. And, uh, you know, he is just, he's also at the same time, one of the best known civil rights activists in the UK. So I literally woke up the other day listening to NPR, which is what comes on my radio when it comes on in the morning. And I heard Sir Jeff and I'm like, what, what are they interviewing Sir Jeff about? And it was about the entire controversy around taking down statues of, uh, uh, of, of, of slave owners. And I was like, wow, here's a guy who's basically a deity in, in beer and, uh, 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 and in spirits, and is also on the BBC, you know, uh, talking about uh, these issues. So a perfect guy to be working with on this side. And, you know, he's certainly become a mentor to me. And then on the distilling side, this scholarship is named after uh, Nearest Green, who was the original master distiller for Jack Daniels. Um, 
And of course, uh, people tend to think of both of these disciplines, whether it's beer or wine, or, uh, 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 or if you're talking about spirits, they think of them as being somehow European based, but they forget the fact that, especially before the Civil War, uh, black people made almost all the beer in the United States. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and almost all the whiskey. Right. And so uh, there is a, you know, David Wondrich recently showed me uh, a census uh, study that he had of black distillers from the 1800s and, and it comes directly out of the census and they would list out, here they are, you know, I mean, the, the, the term was Negro, obviously at the time, but it's like distiller, Negro, and like all these people. And now we think not that much, you know, longer later uh, of this as a thing that comes only out of a European background where, especially when it comes to bourbon, that's not even vaguely true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? right. and, and, and every, every African society, you know, up and down the continent, east and west, has a strong brewing tradition uh, as well, which was also brought into play, you know, in the early United States. So I think it's worth remembering that the culture around beer and around spirits and also around wine belongs to everybody, you know, worldwide. And so what we're looking to do, you know, to get, you know, uh, uh, in a big loop to, you know, where I was going here, the Michael James Jackson Foundation really only does, at least as its primary mission, two things. We provide uh, scholarships uh, to accredited institutions for technical education within brewing and distilling fields. And when we say technical education, we're talking about in production. Uh, so there are a whole bunch of things that we don't do. You know, we are not sending people to bartender school. Uh, we are not sending people out for sommelier training. We are not sending people out for beer sommelier training. We will help people find connections and resources for all those other areas. But, you know, our actual mission is to help people within, uh, 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 within those two professions uh, achieve the technical education that they need to have a strong career uh, in brewing uh, uh, and or in distilling. And I say and or because I know people who have gone from one to the other because they are so interrelated. Yeah, and they really are. I mean, both of the worlds truly do collide, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, scientifically. That's, that's why Jeff Palmer is, uh, is God for the whiskey people and for the beer people. And for the beer people as well. Absolutely. You know, can you tell us why is there such an imbalance of people in co- people of color in both distilling and in brewing? Why is there such a huge gap? Okay, well, let's look, uh, you know, a lot of this is historical, but a lot of it is also right now. So, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll put myself in the hot seat here, you know, because I certainly don't think of myself in any way, shape or form as a racist, especially against you know, uh, uh, you know, people of color, a group you know, to which I belong. Uh, however, here is a good example from me personally of how you can be part of the problem and never even see it. So, uh, you know, I, I said I've been at Brooklyn Brewery since 1994 and maybe in the old days, somebody could have come to us as an enthusiast, um, really not even then, you know, like 1996, you know, we, my first assistant was an experienced brewer. We, I never had anybody in who was just like a home brewer uh, and came in as an amateur. But pretty quickly, we got to a point where 
we really required some experience from you. So if you look a couple of years ago, what are my requirements if you want to come apply for a job at Brooklyn Brewery? Now, let me backtrack to say I have not seen a single African-American applicant for a brewing job uh, in my 30 years as brewmaster between the two breweries that I've worked with. So no applicants. Now, originally I might've said, well, I guess people aren't really interested. This is not really a thing for them, uh, whatever else. And I'm busy, right? I don't have time to go looking for black people and Latinos and Asian people or whatever else. I'm just gonna see who comes in front of me and is qualified and I will take those people. Well, this is what actually happens. So in the brewing uh, industry, it is estimated, and I'll use African-Americans as an example, uh, less, quite a bit less than 1% of people working in production in brewing are African-American. And this was a recently a study, so we know that. Um, I don't think it's much different for Latinos and not much different for Asians and other groups, certainly much lower for Native Americans. So, okay, so you have less than 1%. Uh, what are my requirements? I require two to three years of experience uh, at a brewery. Well, most breweries in the United States are, you know, uh, only a few years old. Three to four years old is the average. And then if I'm to require two to three years of experience and there's fewer than 1% of people of color actually working inside the industry, where exactly would those people of color with two to three years of experience come from? There's a chicken and egg problem. Now, those are not the only people I would take. I would also take you if you could show equivalent coursework from accredited institutions. Now, let's look at the realities. African-Americans have 10% of the family assets, household assets of European-Americans in the United States. That doesn't mean that their income is only 10% of, but it means that in the bank, in property, in actual assets, they have 10%. So other people have 90% more. So let's look at the prices of the accredited institutions. And these are good institutions. I, I have hired many, many people out of them. I have sent people through these courses. So I'm not arguing with the prices thereof. However, Master Brewers Association short course, about $3,000 American Brewers Guild in Vermont. Great course, I probably hired 10 people out of there over time. And we've had many interns from them. Uh, that's $9,000. UC Davis, Master Brewers Program, $16,000. Harriet Watt in Scotland, even more than that. You get the picture. So you're trying to either draw experienced people that don't exist yet, or barely exist, or you're asking for people to have a qualification which costs huge sums of money from a population who don't have any money. Um, and so uh, uh, by, even though I may not sit in the chair as a racist, the outcome has you know, a racist cast to it. And this is what we end up with in both brewing and distilling. And it looks different on the distilling side in some ways, but on the distilling side, people have a tendency, they either come in through, uh, if there's a union, they may come in through a union, but often it's family. It's like, it's family and it's who you know in your town, you know, who are you friends with? And uh, in the United States, you know, who we're friends with has a tendency to look like us.
you know, that's the reality. You know, who are you in a bar with? So uh, uh, this is, a, and I was just talking to uh, the woman who's in charge of, uh, uh, of innovation for Maker's Mark. And she, I was asking her about this. She's like, yeah, it's the family and family connections that are kind of like how people end up, you know, in distilling. And so obviously you're not gonna have a great path in distilling you know, for these people and they have the same challenges financially. So what we are doing with the foundation is we are, and I use this word advisedly since it sounds cold, but by cold, I mean effective. We are manufacturing the people that we actually want to see come before us for jobs. You know, we're taking them and making them into people who should easily be able to get uh, employed. And this was an interesting insight from Jeff Palmer because I had a vision where I might take somebody who was a really serious home brewer and they're currently an accountant and they hate that job or they don't like, love it as much as they love brewing and they're very smart and I'm gonna bring them up and give them, put them through a course and bring them into the industry and help them find a job and whatever else. And Sir Jeff was like, you know, that's a wonderful idea, but don't do that. Well. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I, you know, and I, and I was like, what? Uh, like, what do you mean? That's, that's great. It's like, why are you going to do the hardest thing first? It's like, there are lots of people who are already in the industry, but they've learned by rote. You know, first of all, it's an award. So you have a scholarship award for achievement of some sort. Maybe a person's been brewing inside a brewery for a couple of years. They started as a bartender. They showed some interest and some ability. They got taught how to brew. But that person, generally speaking, doesn't actually know that much. They know how to brew by rote. Um, there's a difference between like being a line cook somewhere in a diner and being able to turn out a certain number of dishes and having gone through formal training. So you know all the mother sauces and you, can, you know how to add lemon to a, a cream sauce without breaking it. You know how to do, it's one thing if you know how to make this menu. And that's great, but that's not going to help you get a, have a career. You're a fry cook. Well, there right. are a lot of, I mean, which is, you know, which is a job, but it's not a career. And so there are a lot of brewers who are the brewing equivalent of a fry cook. They have a job and they can make these few dishes. But if you ask them, okay, we need you to change it this way or that way, they can't do it. They can't make the beer drier or sweeter because they don't actually know what's going on in the mash time. So once you put up that person who may have been working really hard and is a super smart person, you put them through brewing school, they emerge as a completely different employee who is much more valuable, can be a mentor to others, uh, and has real upward mobility. You know, that person can now move on to be assistant brewmaster and maybe brewmaster, either there or elsewhere. And you give people a leg up. So we're gonna start with people who are already, you know, to some extent inside, at least on the brewing side, and as uh, Sir Jeff put it, attach a rocket booster to them and put them in a position where not only will they have better careers, but they can also be mentors to people coming up from behind them and tell them the story like, yeah, this is what happened. And I won the Michael James Jackson scholarship, you know, uh, uh, you know, the Sir Jeff Palmer scholarship for brewing. And then I took the master brewers course at UC Davis and in five years, I've gone from here to here. And this is how you could do it too. You know, because this representation is really important. 
you know, people don't see people who look like them uh, and come from their family backgrounds anywhere, you know, near this thing. They have no examples of how they could do this themselves. It's important to be able to provide that. In a couple of years, when we're better at what we're doing, we can then reach a little bit further out in the community and take in people, you know, who have zero experience and train them up. But by that time, we'll have a better idea what we're doing. So that's one reason why, and I think it's important to, to try to sidestep ego as much as possible. And ego manifests itself in a number of ways. One of the ways in which it will tend to manifest itself is by trying to do too many things, right? You're gonna help everybody. I'm gonna change the world. It's like, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like really, really you buyers, like no, really you're not gonna change the world. Yeah. It's like, what we're going to do in the first year is we're going to provide six to eight people a really great solid education in brewing and or distilling that will help them get you know a better job and advance their careers and then we will select another group until we start growing something that has a knock-on effect uh within the industry and i think that it is uh uh, also important for each person that gets uh, a scholarship award, we will also assign a mentor uh, who will be a person of color inside the industry who you know, will be there to listen to them, talk to them, hear their stories, and, and, and help them come at this thing from a similar cultural you know, background. We don't want to send people out there and say, hey, you know, hey kid, you know, it's like, good for you. Here's your check, sink or swim. It's like, no, that doesn't work. We know that from higher education studies that have gone on for many, many years, you know, how that can fail. So we are going to make sure this person is held up uh, in their situation. And we want to see them come out the other end successfully and then follow them, you know, into their careers and make sure they make it. You know, it's really important. You know, you don't want to just drop people off and say, here's the finish line. It's like, no, that's not the finish line. <laughs> you know, you know, yeah, I there is there is no finish line like we're we're, we're 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 there to help you throughout yeah there's so much to do well i think that that's such a great thing that the michael james jackson foundation is doing because that means that you are in it for the long haul you are in it to win it you know with the folks that are going to be going through these programs you're not just you know here's here's um, an opportunity to take a class or to finish a program, but no, we are here with you through it because we want to see you succeed and we want to make a true change within the culture of both brewing and distilling. So you identified it and you're going after it for the long haul and I commend you for that. Yeah. It's, very, it's very focused, you know, and because it's very focused, it's very achievable. You know, unless we do a really terrible job selecting these people, these people will get jobs. They will all get jobs, they will get good jobs, and I'm looking forward to being able to feature a number of them on our website where people can go and see like a three minute story of this is where I started and this is where I am now. You know, this is the program that I took. This is what it taught me and this is what I'm doing with it. Um, and I expect to see, you know, those videos up on our website within a year. You know, That's this awesome. is something this is something that, uh, you know, I mean, even in these times and yes, we're all being beat up tremendously both you know uh, uh personally and financially and uh, uh and business-wise by by the pandemic um but you know even still in this environment you know i think that these people uh you know will do well and we intend to to see to it and then later 
you know, you remember the part from The Godfather, you know, you know, someday and that day may never come, you know, I will ask a service of you. You know, so, so we're, we're, we're going to come back around to those people and tap them on the shoulder in a couple of years and say, dude, remember that, uh, you know, that, that nice scholarship you got? Well, it's time for you now to be a mentor to this person, you know, because people say, Garrett, are you going to be people's mentor? And it's like, not that I'm useless, but if you want to know how to get into the brewing industry and you're going to ask me, I've been in for 30 years, you know, <laughs> like, am I really the guy to tell you how to scrap your way, you know, into brewing? It's like, no, I'm like, I'm doing the things that I'm going to be good at, which is connecting you to the resources that you need and the people you need and the mentor you actually need, you know, who's going to remember what he or she just did three or four years ago and is going to be able to talk to you about it in a very present way. Yeah. Um, and I think that's going to be uh, as important, you know, almost as uh, the scholarship awards themselves. Yeah, I think it's amazing that you guys are creating these opportunities, but you're also creating champions for that next group. And it's just ever revolving because we know that in any aspirations for career, you need the champions and then it's your turn to, to do that for others. So I think that's, that's really great. And what is your outreach? And I, I know that there's limited um, opportunities that you're able to give. You mentioned, you know, maybe six to eight for either or brewing or distilling. So what is that, what does that outreach look like? How do you reach those people that are maybe in the front line of a brewery that that ha that's starting to get that experience, but not the technical experience. Well, on the brewing side, uh, I would say that part is going to be relatively, you know, uh, easy, especially in the black community where we do uh, have some numbers established over the last years. In the the uh, Latinx community, I'm you know just sort of starting my outreach through people that I know who are, you know, beer writers, journalists, et cetera, you know, of, of Latin background in the industry. And I'm saying, okay, I need you to connect me to, uh, you know, to people who could be board members, to people who might be awardees. I was talking to uh, a guy, Ray Ricky Rivera, who runs the SoCal Homebrewers, you know, organization. And I'm like, okay, you know, one of the biggest homebrewing organizations in the United States, largely Latino. And so I'm like, okay, so who are the Latino brewers who are out there? Yes, I know some, um, but I think that we are slowly kind of making our way, uh, working our way through the community, knowing who people are. And if you remember the, uh, if you ever saw the Marvel X-Men films, you know, uh, where, uh, uh, you know, Xavier, Dr. Xavier puts the helmet on his head and suddenly he can see all the mutants everywhere in the world. Unfortunately, like, I don't have one of those, you know, uh, Cerebro, you know, that'll show me all of the, uh, all the brewers and distillers of color in the United States. But through various connections and social media, you're able to do that. So, so far, we really, the only outreach at all for the foundation has been through my personal social media. And through that and through friends, we've already raised uh, about $200,000. Fantastic. Um, yeah, which is great. Uh, uh, and, uh, and some of it, it's come in, you know, $10 and $20 at a time or as much as $40,000 at a time. 
Um, and so we have a very wide range of contribution. And that's been just through my own personal social media, Twitter, Twitter, Facebook, and, uh, uh, and Instagram has been the whole thing so far. And now, you know, in talking to you guys and uh, to folks at uh, some of the, uh, some of the uh, big distilling groups and, and, and bigger breweries, I've had discussions with them. I've had discussions with the educational institutions. Uh, there are several layers of outreach because, you know, each of these institutions can do their own outreach. And social media is going to be our main way of reaching out and, you know, through journalists and other people. And certainly through the brewing community today, uh, I have posted, or it will go up in the next couple of hours, uh, a direct outreach into the brewing community through the Brewers Association Forum. And so on the distilling side, I'll be looking for similar opportunities. What are the forums that everybody looks at every day? What are the news outlets? You know, we all get newsletters of various sorts. What are the newsletters that, uh, you know, that, that people follow inside of the distilleries that will actually be read by people who say, oh, look at this, you know, opportunities becoming available. So there's gonna be a lot of activity over the next few months. The board, uh, which is just about convened, will be stood up. Um, we are a 501c3 uh, nonprofit corporation. So all those goodies are just about in place. Uh, we will have our first board meeting within the next uh, few weeks. Um, I'm assembling an application process. Once the board is assembled, you know, they will have input as the application process. And by you know the end of the fall, uh, uh, and well before the end of the fall, I should expect, we will be able to start taking in applications. Um, and then from that point, it's really a matter of us, uh, you know, reading the applications, you know, uh, uh, and sitting as a board and deciding who our first awardees are going to be. So the beauty, uh, you know. Uh, of the way it's designed is because the main product, if you like, of the foundation is really only a couple of things. It's a check, right? I mean, that goes to the educational institution. Um, and it's pretty transparent because they're gonna be, we're gonna be pretty loud about the people who we give the awards to and where they're going to be going. Um, so there'll be the check and then there will be the mentorship. Now on the side of this, and this also goes into community outreach, there will be uh, on the website a resource center. Um, the resource center will be all the various uh, sites and other organizations that we think that you might want to know about. So if there is a uh, black sommeliers collective or a Latino sommeliers collective or whatever else, and I know all these people, that's the thing. Uh, uh, I, I, even though I'm a brewer, I think of myself as, you know, as certainly uh, pretty much an equal opportunity drinker. Uh, I've been drinking natural wine for 25, 30 years. So when this came along, this was not a surprise to me. I also know my way around Bordeaux. Uh, I have a fair, I know, I can drive Piemonte in Italy without a map. I know where all the wineries are. I know who's good. I can discuss Nebbiolo at great length. I can discuss Riesling. Um, I can discuss various the various forms of, uh, uh, of all sorts of wines. And so uh, I'm connected to natural winemakers, especially all over the world. Um, and, uh, and in the cocktail side, like these are my neighbors and friends, you know, 
guys like David Wondrich, who lives like a couple of blocks from me and I see all the time. Um, and I'm actually in Jim Meehan's bartender manual. My picture is in there. Uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and so this world is, is very interrelated, you know, between all the various drinks. Uh, last night I was drinking this from Brooklyn Cora, uh, drinking, uh, uh, <laughs> drinking, drinking sake, which I really, really love. And I can sit here and discuss, you know, various styles of sake with you. So I think that sitting in this chair, we as an organization, just because the specific thing that you may be looking for is not the thing that we might do, if you're not going to win one of these scholarships, that doesn't mean, one, that if you applied and you didn't, you know, get the scholarship, that the situation stops there. We say, okay, you know, you didn't come through this time. You're either ready or not ready to come through. Let's see what we can do to either get you ready to apply in the next round or uh, let's do something. Let's connect you to something that's going to get you where you're going. It's not like you get a, you know, a, a letter back that says, oh, uh, I regret to inform you. Like, we're, we're not about that. You know, the thing is that the connections don't cost money. So... Yep. You know, I'm separating, right. I'm separating stuff out that costs money. When you give money to us, you can be sure the money is going to go towards the scholarships. The other stuff, which may actually be the, you know, the iceberg below the water, which is 80% of it, is actually going to be connecting people to each other, which is stuff that I'm already doing. People started hearing about the foundation. They're like, can I get this? Can I get that? I'm like, no, but let me do this for you. Let me introduce you to so-and-so. I had one guy who was an African-American doctor, uh, medical doctor, uh, out of Florida. He said he's been looking for years. He's wanted to set up a distillery. Uh, he knows a fair amount about it, but he doesn't really have any formal training. Um, and he would really like to be able to do this. Was there anything that I could do for him? And this was like a month and a half ago. At the same time, I had a guy who was the head distiller uh, for a New England-based uh, distillery, uh, making bourbons and such, and said, or, you know, Hudson Valley, uh, wasn't Hudson Valley Distillers, but it was another one, uh, and said, you know, I, I think that the MJF is terrific. I'd love to help out in some way besides just my financial contributions. What could I do? So I just sent an email where I put these two guys together. You know, and now this guy will fly up from Florida and, 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 and get some direct hands-on training uh, uh, in distilling. That took 10 minutes. You know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that big a deal for me, and it didn't cost any money, but it was a thing that we can do. And, and it would be so impactful as well for an individual's life. Just exactly. hitting that send can really change someone, taking the time to hit send. And importantly, there was not really a place that you could go before and know that there was going to be somebody there looking to help you out, right? If you're a person of color and you're like, I would like to get into whatever, like, where'd you go? And we would like to be an answer and definitely not the only answer to that question. It's like, we can be a clearinghouse. We can send you, route you in the right direction, or when we have the opportunity, give you a very direct connection to the person you need to talk to. The same way as, you know, my good friend, Alan Katz did with you guys, you know, yes. it's like, uh, thank you, uh, Alan. You know, I mean, look, that, that, that send button is produced this conversation. So it works in all directions. And I'm looking to pass that along, yeah. you know, to, to people of color in the industry. 
Yeah. And, and there's no secret to the power of connectivity and the power of the network, right? So it's opening that up and, and creating this space, this community where, you know, if you've had experience, if you have experience in the industry is to make those connections. And, and Bridget's even mentioned that, you know, starting off this podcast and talking to different guests and being able to make connections. I think that is so powerful. And, and that's what we want to provide to our listeners and, and give them those resources that they might not have known was available. So how could they find you? How would they be able to uh, find out more about the Michael James Jackson Foundation and your social media handle? Uh, well, my social media handle is I Garrett Oliver. Uh, so there's two R's and two T's. Turns out there was a Garrett Oliver who must be an awful person to have taken you know, my, my <laughs> name. I like that. I Garrett Oliver. Yeah, it's even better. I Garrett Oliver um, uh, uh, is Instagram and I'm just Garrett Oliver on Twitter. Um, the, uh, the MJF will also have its own uh, uh, social media and I keep seeing that people are signing up to it. But I don't have any content yet. Uh, there's only one thing I can do, at a, you know, a few things I can do at a time. Um, I can personally be reached at Garrett at the MJF.org. Um, and the MJF.org is our website where you will see uh, everything from interviews to an FAQ to the basic mission and, and stuff about the foundation. And of course, your opportunity to, uh, to donate directly. So, you know, all that is available under the resources. And then we'll start to build out further resources uh, from here but I have kind of a timeline of all the things I need to do before we're able to, you know, send those checks out in the first quarter, you know, of, uh, of, of 2021. But there's uh, lots of places to get uh, new information. If you're looking to apply uh, for the scholarships, the application process isn't quite ready yet. You can make, you know, you can make an inquiry and we'll hold on to your name and send you an email, you know, when, uh, you know, when that comes up. Uh, I am hopeful that we have an application prepared within eight weeks that, uh, you know, we will share out there uh, as widely as possible, you know, so that we, you know, cast a wide net. As I said, at first, we're going to be looking for people, you know, who are already, you know, uh, in the industry, as I feel that they are the ones who uh, are most likely to come through with success. That does not mean, I think, at the outset that we're going to say, absolutely nobody else, uh, you know, do we want to see. There will be, you know, extraordinary circumstances as there are in many cases. Um, but, you know, the work product of the foundation is the success of the people that we're, you know, we're looking to help. Um, and it's important, you know, to realize that, you know, the work product of the foundation is not impressions or likes or, you know, any other thing other than, you know, the success of the people that we've come to help. And so that's also, you know, where in these sorts of works, I mean, people are well-intentioned, but ego gets involved and you can lose sight of what it is that you came to do. And I can't remember who it was that said it, but it was, it stuck with me. And it said, whatever group you're trying to help, you know, say it's people of color, if they can't spend it, can't eat it, can't use it to get a mortgage, can't use it to get a job, um, then you have to ask yourself who you're actually doing this for. And the answer usually is you. Mm -hmm. It's you. Mm -hmm. 
It's like, it's like, I like that. Because, it, because if nobody else can actually feel the impact in the community that you're talking about, if they can't feel the impact of the thing that you've done, then you haven't actually done anything for them. And so we want the impacts that we have to be clear, to be demonstrable, people to talk to them about it, and we will assess them at first internally and then externally. We'll have a firm come in and, and, and there are people who do this. It's like, okay, tell us, have we actually, are we actually achieving the mission or not? You know, because I, this is all, takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and I am not about wasting my time. <laughs> oh no we appreciate your time today for yeah, no, sure. no we don't have you know, none of us have any time to waste so yeah but but i think you know garrett what you are creating is a legacy you're creating a legacy and you're leaving something um for those that are coming up you know in the industry something to look forward to and really opening that door and with that said you know how can beer companies distributors spirit companies distillers and the consumer get involved with the mission of the Michael Jackson Foundation? Well, Ed, thanks for asking. At the outset, there's two obvious things. One, we do need the, 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 uh, the funds to actually do the job because the main work product, if you like, you know, the checks produce the, the education and it's expensive. So if you say, wow, you've raised $200,000 and that's great, but if you do the math, you know, if, if, you, if you have a $16,000 course, for example, that's not that many people. Doesn't mean it's not significant, but it means that it's not that many people, you know, in numbers. Um, you may be able to help more people for smaller courses, but if you're able to raise a lot more, you can do more. Um, and so, you know, we're mindful of that. The second thing is mentorship. You know, throughout these organizations, you know, especially maybe in the bigger breweries, there may be people who you never will have heard of who worked inside a brewery whether it's an Anheuser-Busch or a Miller or a Coors, and they've been brewing for 10 or 15 years. Maybe they're not in the craft brewing scene and we haven't seen them, but they might be in there and they might be willing to act as a mentor, you know, to somebody coming up, you know, uh, in craft brewing. We want, you know, the big brewers to be involved, both financially, but also on the mentorship side, um, you know, because there is a lot of knowledge inside these breweries that, uh, you know, that people can, can really use. On the distributor side, I've had a number of distributors actually make pretty large contributions because they want to see this happen too. They're looking at their situation. They're saying, wow, we don't have any reps of color. And then you look at what's going on in beer, wine, and spirits. And I was just talking to somebody a little while ago from the Black Bourbon Society. And I was talking to some other people you know, who are within the industry and they're like, wow, we don't, a lot of black people drink bourbon, like lots of black people drink bourbon traditionally, but you don't see, you know, professionals inside the industry coming out of the community. And what I say to a lot of people who are inside a craft beer is like, okay, if you want to know how this gets set up as a barrier, imagine this, every time you wanted a great cocktail, or every time you wanted a great glass of wine, or every time you wanted really nice craft beer, uh, if you're a European American, suppose that every single bar that you went to or restaurant, everybody in there was black. Now, you might say to yourself, well, that'd be fine. Like, I'm, I'm, a, you know, I'm a liberal person, I'm not made uncomfortable, but really, really? Like, wouldn't it be at least really, really weird for you? I mean, 
Because I'll tell you, it sure is weird for the rest of us to have the same thing happen in the other direction. When you see people who look like you, you become more comfortable. Absolutely. Pretty straightforward. Absolutely. Pretty straightforward. And that's the same with, you know, for, for women, you know, I'm sure <laughs> not seeing other women on the other side of the bar, um, you know, that sends a message. And so, <clears throat> pardon me, if you have people working in the breweries and distilleries who are people of color, then they're going to bring their friends and they're going to bring their families and they're going to help, you know, promote your products overall. So people are looking all over the place for what's the next big thing. Well, the next big thing is selling whatever it is you're selling to the other 45% of Americans, you know, who really like nice things too. Brooklyn Brewery sells beer in 36 countries. Uh, it is actually more than 50% of the beer that we produce is uh, sold outside of the United States. Many people don't know that. And so one thing that we see is that everywhere that you go, people have some weird idea that people from here, wherever here is, don't like these things. When we first went to France six years ago, uh, New York Times, I can send you a link, had a big article, you know, Brooklyn Brewer comes to France with plans to seduce, they said. You know, good luck, said the New York Times. Nobody in France drinks beer. This is a wine drinking country and it has one of the worst beer markets in the whole. Yeah. Within four years, it was our number four market, was France. Incredible. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. I think that that's the kind of same thing with women and whiskey. Like women, they don't drink whiskey. Why would we market bourbon or whiskey or single malt scotch to women? They don't yeah. drink it. They don't like it. Ew. They only want sweet stuff with whipped cream on it and this cherry on top, which is just a crock of, can I say the S word? I don't know if I can. But yeah. Well, that's a crock, that, crock of poop is what it is. And remember that Chinese people don't drink wine. Yeah. Now, what, when was it like two, three years ago that Christie's moved their whole wine auction department to Hong Kong? You know, it's like, hmm, that sure changed fast, didn't it? Yeah. You know? It turns out that what you find out, no matter where you go, people, I would be in China, people say, oh, people in China, they don't like bitter things. And then you go looking for studies, and it turns out the top selling craft beers in China are IPAs. Like everybody, everybody everywhere likes good stuff, no matter what it is. If they can afford it, you know, they're going to buy it. And so uh, this idea that you are culturally specific uh, or even genetically specific in some way that sets you apart that you will not like these things. It's just the most ridiculous idea ever. And I really saw it play out uh, in a meaningful way to me at a uh, beer festival called Fresh Fest, which uh, took place in Pittsburgh and will again. It should have this year, but for obvious reasons didn't. It happened online. But this is an African-American run beer festival. And I can tell you, having been professionally in beer for 30 years, before I showed up for Fresh Fest, I had never, ever seen anything like that. I mean, I get there, and there's like a couple of thousand Black people drinking craft beer, totally geeking out. And there are almost 50% women. There are gay people, trans people. Everybody's there, and it's like this big love fest, and nobody has any problems with everybody else. Everybody's like, there were people crying. There were literally people just spontaneously crying all over the place because they were so moved just by the scene, not by even by one specific thing. They were like, here we finally are. Here you we made it. Are. We're, all, yeah. we're all here. These are the people I've been looking for. And it's like, 
you thought that it didn't exist, but of course people want this stuff. You know, if you give them an opportunity to be involved with it, if you, you know, approach them with respect, I've talked to people inside the bourbon industry of saying, well, I have like the Black Bourbon Society coming to me and saying, man, uh, you know, I'm kind of realizing we don't have any, we don't have any African-American reps. We don't have any African-American outreach into the community. And it turns out that such X percentage of, uh, uh, you know, of bourbon is drunk by people of color. And people have thought the same thing in all kinds of other disciplines. You know, if you've gone back, say, 40 years ago and asked, you know, uh, Puma or Adidas or Nike who's going to buy their sneakers, they would say they would have said, well, the African-American community doesn't have any money. Right. <laughs> like, there's a difference between not having assets and not spending any money. Right. Uh, where people have disposable income and there are nice things, everybody wants to have it. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's an important thing to realize that this is not only a good thing for society in general and not only a good thing for the awardees who get the scholarships, but it's also really good for business. You know, really, you know, people are now trying to figure out hard cider. How do we, how do we sell, you know, hard cider? We're going to make flavored water with alcohol in it. And the brewing industry is working really hard to see how we can grab that market before we've even worked on selling beer to, you know, craft beer to Asians and black people and Latinos, you know, and Native American people and everybody else in the country who are like 40 something percent of the people in the United States. You know, that's the low hanging fruit. That's <laughs> such a great analogy because, you know, being that we represent uh, so many of our spirit brands, it's all about innovation, right? So they're, they're targeting the same demographic, the same consumer over and over with a new product, new innovation, instead of broadening. And I think everybody wants to do that. That is the intention, but it's also the intention and how they go about it. There's a gap, right? Because you need to show up in a very authentic way. You need to be inclusive, having these type of festivals where everybody feels they're a part of it. I think that's where there's a struggle um, is how do you engage those communities that, that might not be uh, so natural to, to your original strategy and, and your marketing strategy. Yeah, I think, look, we used to just say, well, we, we hardly do any fishing, right? But if we're going to fish, we're going to fish where the fish are, mm -hmm. you know? And then you start putting the bait in the same pond over and over again. And as you bring out these new products, you simply break up, you know, that market share, but you have the same amount of money that you're, that you're fishing with it, you know? And so obviously the strategy is if you play, if you play it out a particular pond, move to a different pond. Like where there are lots of fish, you know, like this is, this is a pretty, pretty easy thing to understand. Um, you know, it's like, well, I heard in that pond, they don't, uh, you know, they don't like the fish in that pond don't like worms. Like, have you dangled one? Yeah, give it a try. Yeah. I mean, like you, you might, might want to, you might want to check that out for a second there. The other thing is that people are realizing, and this is why the foundation exists, that this stuff is actually work. Like good intentions do not produce any results at all, really. It requires right. work. So if you say, okay, we're doing diversity and inclusion within whatever. Okay, so I have 15 things to do today. I have a bullet list, 15 things. 
Number one, I'm going to fix my chiller. Number two, I'm going to do this. Number three, I'm going to do that. Number four, I'm going to brew this beer. Number five, I'm going to do this blending. Uh, number six, we're going to move these barrels. And at number 14, you have diversity and inclusion. When did you ever reach number 14 on your list of things to do today? You're lucky if you get to number eight, right? So the only way that anything will ever happen is at least for a few days or some period of time, you take the number 14 thing on your list and you move it to number three. You know, just even temporarily. This is the main thing I'm doing today. And that is what a lot of people don't seem to realize. They think that just saying, well, you know, uh, we're gonna put out a policy and there's gonna be a statement and nobody here is racist, right? So like, hey, we're good, you know, <laughs> and that's gonna be it. Or we're gonna, we're gonna hire one rep. You know, let's see if we can find, you know, a, you know, a, a, a Latino person or a black person or an Asian person. Um, that's not it. You know, it has to be part of your overall culture where you're saying, no, we would like to see everybody at our party. That's, that, that's, that's the mindset that you have to have. How would this happen? And you're going to need to spend some time on it. You know, it's going to have to be a good part of somebody's job, you know, to do this. And otherwise, you're not really going to do anything. And look, I spent 30 years sitting in the brewmaster's chair, and I would have liked to have thought that I was, uh, you know, a beacon to others. But, you know, that's not good enough. It didn't produce any result. It produced the same result. You know, yes, people have seen me. I'm very visible. You know, I won the James Beard Award. I, you know, I, 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 I was on Emerald Live, you know, in, mm -hmm. the, in, the, in the 90s. I've, you know, I've been on TV with Martha Stewart. You know, I've been in every outlet you can imagine. You can't get rid of me. You know, I'm all over the place, right? <laughs> and still, this did not produce a single African-American applicant for a brewing job in 30 years. What does that tell you? Mm -hmm. What it tells you is that just being there is not work. And that work is what it actually requires. Yeah. And, yes. you know, and you have to be willing to actually do the work. And if you're not going to do the work, like, please don't act like you are going to do the work because, you know, that, that just wastes people's time and resources. So, like, I, you know, I'm a busy person. I have a job. Uh, this is not something I wish that we didn't have to do this. But this is a thing that needs to get done. Now, I will not be doing this forever. I, it is, I put it into the bylaws you know, uh, of the organization at its outset that the clock is already ticking on you know, the Garrett Oliver show uh, you know, for this particular organization. So you know, I, I hope to play out my term as five, uh, uh, five years uh, as chairman. Um, but thereafter, I will not ever be chairman again it's right there in the bylaws it's like there's no, i'm not going to be sitting here you know atop and i put it in there partially because i know human nature being what it is that if we're doing really great work and we're having great effects and this is a really wonderful thing and if we achieve what we came to achieve in four and a half years god i'm gonna want to stay <laughs> you know <laughs> you're I'm not gonna, gonna want to go I'm, yeah i'm not gonna want to go right <laughs> I mean, like why would you want to go like, uh, you know, like people are, you know, you're getting all the, all the feels, all the good feels, like you're doing the great work and you're chairman and people are interviewing you and this is awesome. Get out. <laughs> Get out.
get out of the chair. Like, let somebody else in the chair, somebody who's younger than you and smarter than you and faster than you and more connected than you. Make the connections and get the hell out of the way. This is what needs to be done. You know, we understand it, hopefully, in politics. And I think it's really important for an organization like this. So I'm looking to build an organization that can keep doing this work as long as it needs to be done into the future. And that doesn't mean me sitting around at 70 years old still being chairman. You know, it, it doesn't make any sense. You know, yeah. I'll give advice. Maybe I'll be a board member if they'll let me. But, you know, uh, uh, you know it'll, be, it'll be them, not me. As it should be. I mean, I love that you are truly creating space for others, Garrett. You're truly making that room and making that impact and not trying just to do a good deed as, you know, kind of quoting what you said. I was um, listening to a seminar yesterday uh, within Tales of the Cocktail, and it was about, you know, kind of sitting at the table. And one of the, one of the people that were um, being featured said, look, screw it. We need a new table. We need to take the table and just toss it. We need to break the table and build a new table and to keep extending that table, which just rings so true for everything that you said today. Yeah. Everything you said today, like to continue creating seats for others at the table. Continue. No, if, if you look at the big New York Times article that came out about you know black brewers trying to help out other black brewers, if you start reading down the comments, uh, depending on your point of view, I mean, me and people that I knew found them fairly hair-raising. You know, it's like, oh, like, why does everything have to be about race? It's like, have you noticed the history of the United States? Mm -hmm. Or like what's going on in the news? Uh, uh, you know, uh, look, at, look at the situation that we actually have, right? And the funny thing is, you know, nobody ever asked me these questions when I was setting up te technical conferences entirely for Swedish people technical conferences entirely for, you know, for Norwegian people. Um, I have done, I hope, a lot for a great many brewers over the years, whether it's connections or it's seminars or it's full-on conferences and whatever else. And nobody asked me why everyone here was white. So why is there a problem where I take one little thing and decide to help these people over here? Doesn't mean I'm gonna stop helping you. <laughs> it means that I'm putting my, I'm, I'm, I'm spreading my effort more equitably to include people who look like myself, you know, and I think that's, uh, you know, that is entirely reasonable. And I think that we have to be realistic about, you know, the United States and, and where we're living and, and what's going on politically. And just because we're all really nice people uh, doesn't mean that it changes anything. You know, the, the work still needs doing. And the work is tiring, you know, yeah. it, it's exhausting, it's tiring, but it definitely needs to be done. And I think that you just touched on a very key word and that's equity. Equity is yeah. the most important when we talk about diversity and inclusion. Um, equity is key. It is key. And there are other people who are looking to, you know, whether it's uh, uh, crowns and hops or it's beer culture, looking to connect people to, you know, entrepreneurial opportunities, et cetera. And not that I'm not going to do that. Again, the foundation is focused. You know, we don't have a business function uh, thing. We'll connect you with somebody and maybe that person is going to help you. Uh, uh, and there'll be something in our resource center, you know, for you to check out, you know, and look at. Uh, and we have board members who actually 
are on other boards that do those things. So there may be very direct connections. You may have applications come in and say, well, this organization that we're sitting here for right now doesn't do this, but I sit on this other board and this person would be great for that. And they just like run with it, get in touch with the person and say, hey, how about, this is not working over here, but how about you do that? You know, because, you know, a lot of us are wearing two or three hats, you know, as I'm sure each of you does. Um, and so, you know, I think there's going to be a way through to help, you know, in some way, shape or form, almost everybody who gets in contact with us. I'm just looking forward to the day not long from now when I'm not the only one answering the emails because uh, I'm starting to get a lot, a lot of emails and you find yourself sitting there on the couch at, you know, 1230 a.m., you know, answering the last of them before you sign off. Uh, and it makes for some really long days. But, you know, um, I have not during the pandemic, I have not learned to speak fluent French. Uh, I have not read any of the great classics. I haven't even caught up on old movies or whatever else. I may have gained a pound or two, uh, you know, depending on what it's made of. I don't know. But I kind of feel like, <laughs> well, you know, I would have been in a dozen countries this year. You know, I had six different countries scheduled between just March uh, uh, and, uh, and June. And so my normal right now, I would be out in the hop fields, you know, in Yakima, Washington, doing hop selection, which we are now doing here. The hop selection is being sent to us. So I do have more time in a certain way, and I'm simply spending that time trying to do something that I think needs doing. Um, and I would say to your listeners, if you have, you know, some extra time, some extra energy, and if you think that this needs to be done, you know, if you can reach out to us and say, like, you, you've heard what it is that we do, what is it that uh, you feel you could lend to an organization like this? And we, you know, we'll be grateful to hear about it. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that. I know, I think we're a little bit um, short on time. So I think that we're going to go ahead and end on that. Can you give our listeners just one more time the handles that they should be looking for on social media for the Michael James um, Jackson Foundation as well for yourself? Just one more time with that. Well, I'm I Garrett Oliver, which is our main social media right now uh, uh, on Instagram or just Garrett Oliver on Twitter and Garrett Oliver on Facebook. Uh, you know, and then uh, the website, which is the main portal, is themjf.org, uh, the Michael Jackson Foundation. So, you know, from there, you'll see branches going out from there. You can also send me an email, you know, through there, uh, Garrett at themjf.org. So. Uh, I like to tell people, not only am I 400 years old, but I'm a very easy man to find. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with Julie and I today. We really appreciate it. I know our listeners, um, myself and Julie, have learned so much from you just in this quick, short hour. Um, I want to, you know, Garrett, wish you just very well, great health, and wish you a lot of peace. And keep doing what you're doing. You're doing some great work. And I can't wait to have you back on the show. Well, thanks very much to both of you, uh, uh, you know, and, and have a great day. It's like, look, we're, we, you know, we're, we're if anybody's going to help people get through, you know, it's what you guys do and what we got yeah. and what we do. <laughs> and and that's what I wanted to add. We are here with you. This is we're just the beginning and we don't plan to go anywhere. So we, we appreciate all the work that you're putting in and, and we've committed to the work and, and we're going to see it through. So looking forward to what the future holds. All things in moderation, but we all need, we need, we need whiskey, cognac, sake, 
wine, beer, all of it. Yeah. You know? Like what RBG uh, says, one step at a time. One step right? at a time. One that's step how at we, a time. That's how we set the precedent. So right. wishing, uh, wishing everybody the best. Get the last licks of uh, summertime in our part of the country uh, that you can. And uh, we hope to see you out there soon. Thank you. Cheers. Thank right. you. Cheers. Thanks Cheers. very much. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers. <laughs>